Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. On January 23, 2017, as part of a Works in Progress series at the National Gallery of Art, Jamie Gabarelli provides a brief history of the gallery's recently expanded collection of Renaissance Maialica. As a means to introduce an upcoming exhibition, Gabarelli highlights and analyzes these refined, beguiling, and brightly colored ceramics in connection with Renaissance prints and illustrated books, which played a key role in the development of ceramics decoration in early modern Italy. As you've already heard, I'm a fellow in the Old Master Prints Department, uh, but during the past year and a half, I've spent much of my time studying Maiolica, um, which is um, Italian Renaissance ceramics. In particular, I've been interested in the specific type of Maiolica uh, decoration called istoriato, a genre in which glazed ceramic surfaces are painted with narrative scenes, istoriato literally meaning painted with stories, setting out to explore its intimate connection with prints in the 16th century. The rise of Historiato was contemporaneous with and largely fueled by the greater diffusion of the new medium of prints in the mid uh, to late 15th century. The fascinating connection between these two art forms is at the core of an exhibition I proposed and that is scheduled for April 2018. In this short talk, I would like to provide a brief overview of the history of the National Gallery's Maialica collection, as well as a few glimpses into Maialica collecting, before looking in more detail at some of the highlights of the exhibition, foregrounding some of the issues I have found most intriguing. The 18th century visitor to Narford Hall in Norfolk, near the southeastern coast of England, would have been rewarded with a rare and remarkable sight, one which would have made even a trip to Norfolk worth the traveler's while. Inside this elegant country house, the antiquarian and amateur architect, Sir Andrew Fountaine, had assembled what was the, at the time the largest and most important collection of Italian Renaissance ceramics on British shores. The ceramic wares were densely displayed in a room variously referred to as the China Closet, or Octagon Closet, which had been especially built for the collection. The objects therein were protected from voluminously draped, bulkily bewigged visitors, as well as a vacillating grip of inexperienced servants, by an extravagant set, set of floor-to-ceiling glass doors, to which only Sir Andrew had the key. A glass skylight in the ceiling showered the ceramics with abundant natural light, which made their glazes, colours and lustres sparkle and glow. Although separated by time and space from this luminous, now long-vanished display, if we strain our eyes to take a closer look at the octagon closet, perhaps, perhaps much like the visitor to Nartford, we begin to discern a familiar outlines and connections to the present. Nestled on the shelf in the centre of the room, next to a large moulded vase, is a plate depicting St Paul preaching in Athens. The black and white image can hardly do justice to this brightly colourful, animated and skillfully executed work, probably made in Urbino around 13, 1535, which just entered the National Gallery collection in 2014. This beautiful plate is one of about 90 objects from the William A. Clark Maiolica collection, formerly housed in the Corcoran Gallery of Art, that now have come to our museum. Here, they joined a smaller but equally fine group of Maiolica from the Widener collection, bringing the gallery's holdings in this medium to around 120 pieces. But how did these fragile earthenware works come to leave Italy, scatter across Europe, and meet again in Washington, D.C. Around 1908, Clark, a redoubtable railroad tycoon and rather infamous politician, acquired through the London dealers uh, Duveen Brothers, 
a large number of ceramics from the collection of the German banker Oskar Heinauer. Heinauer was the uh, head of the Rothschild Bank in Berlin and had acquired his taste for Mallorca from his employers and bought many pieces uh, at the Fountain sale of 1884. At around the same time in 1910, Peter A.B. Widener, the father of National Gallery patron Joseph E. Widener, also made a substantial purchase of Mallorca from Duveen Brothers. The 29 pieces which formed the core of Widener's collection came from the Paris estate of Maurice Kahn, a refined connoisseur who had selected and assembled works from the greatest 19th century French and Italian collections, including the renowned Spitzer collection. And here I, I couldn't resist showing you some of the images of the lavish six-volume catalogue of the Spitzer collection published in 1892 with chromolithographs of the Maiolica, such a, um, as the plate on the left that came to the National Gallery, or the wine cooler um, to the right, to which we shall return later. And the volumes are in our library and they belong to Joseph E. Widener. When William Clark died in 1925, he intended to donate the collection to the Metropolitan Museum on the condition that it be kept under his name. The Met refused the offer, and Clark's heirs opted for the second choice of the Corcoran Gallery, which agreed to house the Clark collection in a specially designed building opened by President Coolidge in 1928. The Washington Post article covering the opening ceremony listed faience, as Mayolica was often called, uh, as one of the highlights of a collection that would be, quote, a splendid permanent addition to the treasures of the national capital, end quote. The Widener Mayolica, on the other hand, came to Washington years later, in 1942, was somewhat reluctantly accepted by the gallery and barely mentioned by the press at the time. In the post-war period, interest in Mayolica had waned, and this small group of objects was outshined by the many outstanding Widener paintings that transformed the National Gallery collection. Though the Clark and Widener collections were brought together under one roof by little more than chance, they are surprisingly complementary parts of a now truly spectacular whole. Indeed, while Clark's selection was strong in early historiato pieces and in the works by the renowned Francesco Santovelli and other Urbino painters, it did not include as many masterpieces executed with luster in Deruta and in the workshop of Mastro Giorgio in Gubbio, which were the core of the Widener group. While the very recent marriage of the two collections provided the impetus behind organizing an exhibition of Armaiolica, the focus of the exhibition on its visual sources follows a long-standing interest among European Mallorca collectors. Furthermore, the study of its visual sources provides insights not only into how Mallorca was made or how those models spread across artistic centers, but also on why Mallorca was appreciated by generations of aristocratic connoisseurs including early 20th century wealthy American collectors, such as Clark and Widener. To better explain what I mean, I would like to take you back to Narford Hall. An inventory of the house compiled in 1738 describes the fam famous octagon closet as, quote, adorned with earthenware, set on shelves from top to bottom, a great deal of it painted by Raphael Urban. It is only seen through a, a looking glass door. When the English engraver and antiquarian George Virtue visited Narford Hall a year later, in 1739, he described its contents in more detail, captivated as he was by, quote, a most rare cabinet of earthenware painted, gilded, and adorned with great beauty and variety of ancient Italian designs and paintings from Raphael, Giulio Romano, and Del Sarto, and other famous masters of the age, being vases of beautiful shapes and colors, 
All, in, um, all these are in a room ranged in the most elegant and delightful order possibly can be imagined. And adding, this collection has been seen by the royal family who wanted to purchase if they could or, or would spare the money, end quote. Fountaine's collection remained more or less as it was for about a hundred years, when it was considerably expanded by his heir, Andrew Fountaine IV. Upon inheriting the estate in 1835, the younger Fountaine described the closet as about 200 pieces of ancient earthenware called Raphael's, which is, is painted by him and his scholars from his designs. Clearly, the connection with designs by the best artists of the Renaissance was deemed central to the appeal of Historiata Maiolica. Early collectors, however, perhaps misled by the fact that Urbino was a major center of historiato decoration, were mistaken in their assumption that Raphael himself had painted ceramics. In fact, he never did, but the myth survived for centuries and was certainly not helped by the fact that 17th century art historian Carlo Cesare Malvasia had once disparagingly called Raphael Boccalaio Urbinate, that pot painter from, from Urbino. Raphael's designs did play a crucial role in the development of historiato, though um, not through Raphael's direct involvement, but through the indirect, unpredictable, and diffuse influence of the multiple prints issuing from his workshop in Rome. As many of you will have recognized, our plate of poor preaching in Athens reproduces a design that Raphael made for the Sistine Chapel tapestries. The monumental cartoons were made in Rome around 1515 and immediately sent to tapestry weavers in Brussels. Knowledge of this composition, however, was spread in Italy and beyond not by the inaccessible cartoons or Sistine tapestries, but by the print that Raphael's friend and collaborator, Marcantonio Raimondi, engraved in Raphael's workshop around 1518. As easily reproducible multiples, prints broadcast compositions, visual motifs, subjects, and styles to a rapidly expanding audience. Produced by transferring ink on the light and relatively cheap support of paper, prints were easier to acquire, move, transport, and send than any other medium. Images on paper, a fairly translucent material, were also easy to trace so that they could be copied, reused, reversed, and adapted to new purposes. Using the numerous prints produced in Raphael's Roman workshop, pottery painters in Urbino and elsewhere created thousands of objects richly adorned um, in the up-to-date classicizing style of their revered compatriot. Our plate could be compared with another one in Pesaro, also made in the Duchy of Urbino at around the same time. The clearly divergent styles of the two plates leave no doubt that they were made by two different painters and likely in two different workshops, each working from their own impression of the same engraving. The painter of our plate decided to stay faithful to Raphael's design, while the Pizarro artist, perhaps regrettably in this case, took a more creative approach, adding a twisting tree and an awkwardly, awkwardly altering the paving of the steps. While the latter artist remained anonymous, the painter of our plate signed his initials in the lower left with the Greek letters Phi Delta. These have been read by some scholars as Fontana Durantino and interpreted as the signature of Horatio Fontana from Castel Durante, a known pottery painter and workshop owner, though this interpretation is still far from certain. What the unusual signature in classicizing Greek letters makes clear, though, is that, the, is that the pottery painters perceived that their status, role, and ambitions were changing, just as the content and complexity of their wares was being elevated under the impulse of artistically accomplished prints. The exhibition will give a sense of the influence of Raphael, both through historiati that reproduce his most famous compositions in their entirety, and in works that use Marcantonio engravings merely as starting points for more personal reinterpretations.
A more creative approach to copying is seen in this very large plate with the death of Marcus Curtius, attributed to the Milan Marcius painter and executed around 1530. Here, the painter splits the group of figures from Paul preaching in Athens and pushed them to the sides of his plate, so to speak, repurposing them as witnesses to the central scene, the Republican hero, hero Marcus Curtius about to plunge into the chasm. Transformed by a gospel from a gospel story into an emblem of Republican patriotism, the whole scene is now set against a new background, with classical architecture signifying the Roman Forum and a generic, timeless landscape in the distance. Two or more prints could also be combined to form a new composition, as was the case in the spectacular massacre of the innocents painted by Francesco Santovelli around 1527. This very large plate, with its extensive flat surfaces covered in skillful depictions of naked bodies and movement, perspectival views, and architectural and sculptural detail, bears eloquent witness to the artistic ambition of the best Majolica painters, and is certainly one of the absolute masterpieces in our collection. As such, it will have a prominent place in the exhibition. Xanto's composition is an ingenious combination of the two most famous prints of the massacre at the time, Marcantonio's engraving after Raphael and Marco Dente's widely admired print after Baggio Bandinelli. The tiled floor, the bridge, and the background clearly derive from Raphael, while many of the figures, as well as the column used as the central axis, are taken from Bandinelli's design. Xanto, a prolific painter who, after 1530, signed most of his work, is known for his eclectic cut-and-paste assemblage of single figures into new creative holes. In our plate, he not only copies individual figures, but successfully choreographs them into a hybrid setting derived from both prints. Rarely satisfied with straightforward copying, Xanto cuts out most of Bandinelli's figures, importing new ones from at least two further prints. Uh, like the puto with arms raised above his head, a favorite of Xanto's from a print by Marco Dente, and the man with a Phrygian cap from Marcantonio's abduction of Helen. The precise source for the central grisaille painting on the plinth, far too refined to be of Xanto's own invention, is yet to be identified. Whether faithfully copied or creatively reinterpreted, Raphael's influence on Historiato Maiolica in the 16th century remained preponderant. To a certain extent, then, Fontaine's shorthand sobriquet, Raphael's, was justified. And yet, it would be a mistake to think that that was the full extent of the phenomenon. The ever-growing number and sheer variety of prints available in the 16th century had complex ramification, ramifications, each influencing Maiolica painters in different ways and at different times. The study of this complexity and variety seemed to me to be most intriguing and rewarding for it not only refines our understanding of historiato, but begins to chart a map of the reception, uses, an unpredictable afterlife of prints once they flew off the print shop shelves or market stalls. Perhaps a good subtitle to the exhibition would be Prints and Myolica Beyond Raphael. The exhibition aims to provide a broadly chronological overview of the rise and development of historiato, but does so by grouping the objects around the kinds of models that they were based on. Namely, the section on Raphael will be preceded by sections devoted to 15th century prints designed by Mantegna and Pallaiuolo, and to prints after the antique, and will be followed by sections on Michelangelo, Parmigianino and Rosso, or, um, and on 16th century illustrated books, as well as on German prints and the influence they had on Italian ceramics. I would like to spend the rest of the time we have showing you some of the highlights from these sections uh, to bring the central issues of variety and complexity to life. 
One of the earliest and rarest examples of historiato in our collection is this large dish depicting a seated king turning towards a courtier or scholar. We do not know for certain whether it was made in Deruta or Faenza, although Deruta seems more likely, but its style and decorative motifs suggest it was painted between 1470 and 1480. While its subject is also no longer clear to us, the painter appears to have followed a printed model for his main figure. Um, this fine engraving depicting a king was part of a series of 50 prints, usually, albeit misleadingly, called the Mantegna Tarocchi. The prints were in fact neither tarot cards nor were they designed by Mantegna, but were rather a complex allegorical series of images produced in Ferrara around 1465. Details of the king's robe, the position of his scepter, as well as the unusual geometric base of his podium, leave little doubt that the Maiolica painter had this print or a copy of it available in his workshop shortly after it was made. The Tarocchi are among the earliest masterpieces of Italian engraving. They were a key step in the transformation of the medium from a means to replicate crude religious images to a way of multiplying works of art produced in refined humanist courts. The effects of these silvery, evanescent designs serenely straddling late Gothic ele elegance and new humanist learning was immediately felt as they were copied in miniatures, frescoes, reliefs, and on our very own plate, where the narrative image is carving a larger space for itself, almost competing with the ornamental patterns for a more prominent role. The triumph of the image of a pattern becomes obvious when we compare our king to our shallow bowl made 40 or 50 years later in Gubbio, in the workshop of Mastro Giorgio Andreoli. The draped maiden riding a swan is the muse Cleo, another print from the Tarocchi series. This bowl, painted around 1535, was based on a print made 70 years earlier, and the difference in approach is startling. The image now covers the whole surface of the vessel, and its subject, specified by the painted inscription, takes center stage. The exhibition will also provide the opportunity to compare works from our collection with related pieces from other museums, while exploring the various uses of their shared models. The section devoted to prints after the antique revolves around numerous Renaissance depictions of the figure of Laocoon. The unearthing of the statue of Laocoon from a vineyard in Rome in 1506 sparked a veritable frenzy of interest in the work, which was immediately identified as the one described by the Roman writer Pliny as a masterpiece of ancient art. Immediately after the discovery, letters were written, accounts dispatched, sonnets composed, and sketches taken, and of course, prints quickly engraved and published. Perhaps the most famous and authoritative in terms of the state of preservation of the statue around 1506 is this engraving by Marco Dente, a printmaker associated with Raphael's workshop. The print, which shows the statue before the restoration of its right arm, was the model for this rather haunting shallow bowl from Urbino, now in Milan, which unusually forsakes the bright hues of historiato in favor of a monochrome grisaille effect, seemingly to come closer to the imagined marble original. Unfortunately, this will not be part of the exhibition. However, another shallow bowl in the gallery's collection, made in Gubbio and dated 1539, also depicts the gruesome death of the Leocoon and his children. Our plate, though, which is unsigned and has been tentatively attributed to Francesco Xantovelli, was not based on the print after the statue, but on a different print by Marco Dente, reproducing a fourth century illumination in a manuscript of the Aeneid known as the Vatican Virgil. The print and the bowl will be displayed alongside a second dish by Xanto, which we are hoping to borrow from the Metropolitan Museum. The Metz plate, uh, painted in Urbino but probably lustered in Gubbio, 
is signed by Xanto and dated 1532. Incidentally, lustering was a complex process that occurred in a special third firing after the wares had been painted that resulted in the deposit of a, a brilliant metallic sheen on the top of the glaze. This created iridescent highlights that enhanced the luminosity of the plate. While stylistically related to the NGA ball, it is apparent that the Metz plate is of much higher quality in design and execution, particularly noticeable in the treatment of the faces and in, in the internal modeling and um, shading. In the Metz bowl, Xanto morphs the nude figures of the statue into living, breathing, and bleeding warriors, somewhat puzzlingly placed in an interior. The painter also added an inscription on the verso describing the subject as Laocoon and his children, killed by serpents in the second book of Virgil's Aeneid. Such precise references to textual sources are typical of Xanto's erudite approach to his art, but in this case he is translating the Latin inscription he found on the print. Uh, which also identifies its source as the second book of the Aeneid, quite literally in this case, since it was based on the illustration in book two. It is in intriguing that this version of the Leocoon, um, the one derived from a book with both arms spread out and the right leg tucked under the knee, is the only one that Xanto ever used. Did Xanto deem the depiction of the armless statue a less versatile, less useful model? Or perhaps through the vagaries of the market, he had access to only one of the printed versions? While bringing together these two treatments of the same subject, made seven years apart, will be instructive in terms of their relationship with and use of the same printed model, it may also compel us to rethink the attribution to Xanto of the gallery's ball, pushing it more firmly towards a yet-to-be-identified pupil or follower, one who made, may have made copies or tracings of Xanto's large print collection for his own use. According to a famous letter by Francesco da Sangallo, one of the first people ever to set eyes on the newly discovered statue of Leocoon was Michelangelo. A small section of the exhibition will be devoted to the influence of his designs on the decorative arts. But while his works were copied countless times in a wide variety of media, his impact on historiato decoration um, seems to have been more limited. There is a simple explanation for that. Unlike Raphael, Michelangelo actively guarded against the publication of his designs in print, which, with few exceptions, only began trickling out of the, on the market towards the middle of the 16th century. The greater or lesser availability of prints, their main sources, directly determined the options and choices of Maiolica painters. Thus, fewer than 20 examples of Maiolica after designs by Michelangelo are known today, as opposed to many hundreds after Raphael. I hope, however, that we will be able to exhibit this beautiful plate from Detroit next to the print that served as its model. Dated 1545 and probably made in the Veneto region, it reproduces the puzzling allegory that Michelangelo had executed as a presentation drawing for Tommaso de Cavalieri in the 1530s. Aside from being one of only two historiati after Michelangelo in the United States, this plate bears an inscription on its verso that is the, also the earliest recorded interpretation of Michelangelo's subject. According to the Maiolica painter, the print depicted Daniel dreaming of mortal sins being awakened by an angel, an episode not found in any of the biblical or apocryphal stories about Daniel. Before I conclude, I would um, want briefly to um, share two more highlights. Uh, the first are from the section uh, devoted to Jacopo Caraglio, an engraver of the generation after Marco Antonio, who played a key role in the dissemination of designs by the Mannerist painters Parmigianino and Rosso Fiorentino. 
While Parmigianino was himself an etcher, most of the extant biolica after his designs relates to the engravings Caraglio executed rather than to the painter's own etchings. Engravings, such as Caraglio's Adoration of the Shepherds, um, were printed in larger numbers and were thus perhaps more affordable and less and readily available than artist etchings. Caraglio's print and copies after it served as a model for a number of historiati made in Urbino and Faenza, a stunning example of which, from the Walters Museum, will be included in the exhibition. Ross's designs will be represented by a very large charger that lives just a few blocks away in the Smithsonian American Art Museum. This glorious work of Historiato is based on Caraglio's engraving of the Muses and the Pierides, an episode in Ovid's Metamorphoses, and appears to have been made in Urbino in the workshop of Guido Durantino, founder of the Fontana workshop. It is one of five surviving plates, all of similar dimensions and quality, that came out of the workshop around 1540, such as the one um, in the Fitzwilliam uh, on the right, or the example now in Modula on the left. Other fragments and the wine cooler, formerly in the Spitzer collection and then the Sackler collection, uh, suggest that this now relatively rare print was an extremely popular model in the Fontana workshop, which seems to have serialized the production of painted copies at this stage, um, perhaps made on spec rather than on commission. Lastly, a small group of objects will showcase the less common but fascinating issue of artistic influence between Italy and Germany in, cer in ceramics decoration. I very much hope that the Met will agree to lend one of its absolute masterpieces in Maiolica, this flat, lusted plate made in 1525 in the workshop of Mastro Giorgio in Gubbio, based on Albrecht Dürer's engraving of the prodigal son. Among the earliest dated historiati, it is skillfully executed by an unknown painter and displays the cool palette typical of this early production. In this case, however, the influence of Dürer was mediated by an Italian copy of the engraving, which reversed the orientation of the original composition. A direct relationship between North and South, on the other hand, is witnessed by a, a plate from the Clark collection, part of an armorial service commissioned by the Nuremberg humanist Johann Neudorfer between 1552 and 1560. For the commission, Neudorfer, a famous calligrapher, mathematician, and author of the first German art historical book, sent a design from Nuremberg to Urbino for the pottery painter to follow. The design was in fact a print by Hans Lautensack, showing Neudorfer's and his wife's coats of arms, his Latin motto in a cartouche, as well as his name and profession written in the script he had designed. It was a kind of visual carte de visite, a heraldic portrait of sorts. The etching, of which only six impressions are known, was clearly commissioned by Neudorfer, but could easily be repurposed as a model uh, to commission customized wares. A small, light piece of paper, it could easily be sent across um, long distances with detailed instructions by the patron. The Clark dish, together with a number of extant Italian ceramics featuring German coats of arms, attests to the frequent and fruitful exchanges between North and South, and to the high esteem Italian, Italian Maiolica painters enjoyed among wealthy patrons north of the Alps. Indeed, when we consider how skillfully, creatively, and seemingly effortlessly they transformed black lines on paper into gleaming, brightly colored plates, it is perhaps little wonder. Thank you. I'm happy to answer any questions if you have any. David. Uh, several decades ago, I saw a wonderful exhibition of Maiolica in London, organized, I think, by Tim Wilson. Correct. Uh, and that exhibition put together the uh, dishes with their pictorial sources, mm -hmm. mostly engravings, 
after Raphael and Dürer. Mm -hmm. And uh, the juxtaposition had the uh, uh, negative effect, however, of uh, 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 not causing the viewer to explore the relationship between the two, mm -hmm. but simply to identify the source for the composition, the invention uh, that was used by the ceramicist. Mm -hmm. So it uh, didn't raise the questions that you are doing here. Mm. And in that connection, I think it's important that the um, Mark Antonio engravings in particular are translations of Raphael's uh, much more complex uh, images, uh, sometimes after painting, sometimes after drawings. Mm -hmm. uh, but they represent a translation into a black and white medium, uh, which is then in turn translated back into color. Yes. Because yeah. the color of the Maya dishes has nothing to do with Raphael. No, not at all. Yes. Uh, yes. So it's a it's a complex process of uh, of um, ideas, pictorial ideas, mm -hmm. going through various permutations uh, before, uh, and finally arriving at the dish. Yeah. So I think that um, uh, the fact that you're in the print department and are giving equal weight to the prints uh, and are going to explore the relationships between the Bialik and the prints, I think will be a definite uh, step forward in the understanding of them as any of the prints as anything other than compositional sources. Well, thank you. Yeah, I hope so. I hope I hope it will be presented more sort of um, nuanced um, uh, vision or interpretation that has been given um, so far. I mean, in in in, in Italian uh, scholarship, the, it, these issues have been raised a lot, and there was a great show at the Bargello in twenty twelve. Um, but prints are rarely the center of, um, of these approaches. They're done by Maiolica scholars who are interested in the sources, but not in what does that teach us about prints and how they were used as well. Yes, Kim. Um, Jimmy, I was wondering, the figures that are in the prints mm -hmm. and then in the Maiolica, do they translate one for one as if they truly were trays from the print then traced onto the the the, mm -hmm. the pot, the ceramic, and then built up. Um, are they one to one, or is there some changing? Is there anything? And then the other, and this leads further on. Is there anything in old treatises about how these the steps the have steps. been taken to make the maiolica? Yeah. Um, so th there's a, a a variety of approaches, but. In general, when, when the, the link with the print is so obvious and, and strong, as the examples I've shown you, um, they tend to be the, the same dimensions, as, um, which you know, leads us to suspect that they were, in fact, traced and pounced onto, onto the, um, the surface of the plate. Sometimes, though, um, there are freer interpretations and figures are um, reversed or enlarged or diminished. But in general, I would say the most common way is it is, is a cut and paste. It's a one-to-one -one relationship, and the ones I was able to measure really measure up quite closely. They're not um, exact, but they're close enough to you know, make you believe that. Um, it's interesting, the ancient treatises, we only have um, really Piccol Passo, who uh, wrote extensively on the production of Maiolica, but in the whole treatises, he never mentions Historiato. 
So he talks a lot about how Mayalaka was decorated with patterns or luster, but um, never speaks of um, a whole narrative compositions, perhaps because they were extremely, uh, uh, sort of an extremely rare part of, of Mayalaka production in general. It was more expensive and probably done on commission. So uh, he doesn't mention it. But he does say that uh, he provides a little drawing of, of um, uh, a Mayalaka workshop, and they're all working with models you know, pinned up on the, on the, uh, on the walls. And they're, you know, we presume, prints rather than drawings. But they also had their own uh, drawings for, for decorative patterns that would be you know, repeated one to one again and again. We, you know, the, the production was, um, of decorative things were more, more serialized. Um, but we don't know, and we don't have evidence that they were in fact using pouncing, or uh, we, it, that comes later. It's, it's sort of you know, read back into the, into the 16th century as the, the way, but we don't have firm evidence of it. Um, thank you. I was just wondering if you, because it's going from a one-dimensional to a three-dimensional, and I can see some of the images you've shown that sometimes there's a distortion. Yes. And if the, this person who is working on the plate ever modifies the composition in order to um, improve or, or to, to sort of work in Yes. <clears throat> um, I think the, the, the best painters work with the difficulty um, and, and try to solve it. Most of these very sort of large, ambitious historiati uh, tend to be on flat surfaces, but sometimes they are also on, on extremely concave things or you know, surfaces that are interrupted somehow. And you can see even in the three plates here, the, the figures and the density of the figures is changed. Um, you know, they're more packed in one, they're sort of spread out in the other. It, the, 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 it depending on sort of how big, how big this surface was that they needed to cover, and uh, so in that in that sense, um, they they move things around to make them fit, and then when there is a, a an obstacle like you know the, the trilobed um, wine cooler here, he divides them clearly like even more starkly into three groups, but uh, the best ones are where there's um, you know there's a, a big concave, and sometimes the figures are just. On the on the sides, and they don't enter, but they they're pointing or interacting with the center in some way. So they they use you know, and that happens in the best cases. Sometimes it's just like with the uh, plate from Pizarro, it's it's not a very good result. Yeah. Yes. Was the size of the plate then determined by the uh, the picture? So that if they were going to do it one to one, they would make the plate the size of the of the drawing, such that um, it made it easier. Um, that's a that's a really good point. Um, I I haven't. I, in general, yes, I guess yes. Um, this this Caraglio um, engraving, for example, is one of his largest um, prints. It's not massive, but they they tend to be. Um, I think large prints were attractive because you could you could decorate the whole a bigger surface, I suppose. And then, um, in the case of Xanto, he he takes individual figures and recomposes them, so it doesn't really matter what size the original sheet was. But when the whole composition is is replicated, it tends to be on these large. These are around um, 40, 45 centimeters, um, so they're substantial. You know, more or less the size of a large engraving. In fact, yeah. So I I hadn't thought about it like that. Okay, thank you. Thank you.
This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.